Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Minds of Media. My name is Blake Panashevitz, and today's guest is a content creator for Optic Gaming, a professional host, co-founder of The Daily Walkthrough, and a finalist for the 2019 Host of the Year. Please let me introduce Katie Bedford. Welcome to the stream. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this since you reached out. Yeah, yeah, it should be exciting. I'm interested to kind of like, I like to delve into like everyone's <laughs> life. I don't know if that makes me a very odd person. I just like to know the details that no one else gets to know. Cause he, esports is very much like, almost like a pedestal. We put everyone out there, they're, they're, they're kind of reachable, but we don't really know a lot about everyone in there. And I get to, I get to bridge that gap a little bit. And it's, it's always really exciting to, to be able to do that. So I'm excited to get to learn a, a lot more about you. Well, I'm excited that there's someone interested in long form content. Uh, obviously, I've been in and around journalism for many years at this point, and particularly in esports, uh, it feels like there's a lack of depth yeah. when it comes to journalism, particularly long form, whether it's writing interviews, exposés, anything like that. So um, I love to see that you're willing to take the time to kind of do that digging because it feels like most folks don't have the intention span yeah. for it anymore. So, so I love that. I think it's great. Yeah, it's I'm exciting. We're going to start it off really easy. You actually brought up my first question even before we got started. So I always like to start these off really easy before we get into the, the harder questions. Um, mm -hmm. I noticed that you're a Dungeons and Dragons fan. Um, and actually, I kid you not, that was the first thing I was like, well, how am I started off easy? And you brought it up even before me. Um, you're a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons. How long have you been playing D&D and what interests you about D&D so much? OK, so in the grand scheme of things, I'm kind of a toddler in the D&D world. I haven't been playing for that long, but okay. I had a group back when I lived in Washington, D.C. I was <laughs> with them for about two years. They were the first folks I ever played D&D with. And I had so much fun. I've I've been a voracious fiction reader my whole life. Um, I love uh, role playing games, MMORPGs. Final Fantasy 11 was a huge part of my life growing up. So <laughs> anything fantasy, fantastical, kind of in that realm of make-believe, yeah. I've always loved. So I knew what D&D was for a long time, but it was kind of like an out of sight, out of mind, seemed cool, but I didn't have anyone to get involved with. And if I did bring it up, people shot it down because yeah. they were like, what are you doing? That's stupid. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound stupid. It sounds pretty lit to me. I don't know. So I found friends in, in um, DC who are willing to kind of take that dive with me. And I had so much fun. I was a half elf cleric with a drinking problem with red wine. And it was just shenanigans. I, the only cool thing I ever did in those two years, the only cool thing was rolling Nat 20 to tame an owlbear. And I named him Chocobo and he was my companion for the whole two years. Really? Yes. So I miss him because obviously I had to leave the group when I left DC, but uh, just no owlbear. My, my Chocobo is my man. <laughs> He's okay. out there somewhere. So have you mentioned you're an avid fiction reader. Have you ever read Dragonlance? What that sounds oh, okay. You, I'm gonna oh, Google this. You have it. Okay, I'm no, you gotta to... understand. You gotta understand. I'm real bad with names. Real okay. bad with okay. names. So there's a chance I've read it. It looks low key. It looks super familiar. Does Raceland Majir sound familiar? I'm looking. I'm literally looking at this on. Okay, I'm gonna open this up because I don't want to get too distracted by my browser. I've opened this up on Amazon and I'm going to read through it. Tell me about it though, because I may have read it. I do love anything involving dragons though. Wait, so tell me about it because I might have a long time ago. Okay, okay. So Dragonlance is my ultimate favorite book series. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with basically these group of friends that come together and gods are considered dead um, at the time or have been gone. And they've been looking for any signs of like God life. And then all of a sudden they appear and it's uh, 
uh, Takisa, who's like the Queen of Darkness, versus um, uh, I can't remember his actual name. Um, but there was like a war of dragons that happens. Dragons suddenly return, and Ooh. it's such a good. You should, if you haven't read it, I will send you the book series afterwards. You should read. Please it. Please do. No, it please is, do. So I, I much prefer actual hardcover books, but uh, I, I had to get on the Kindle wave because I simply don't have space yeah. to put the books around. Um, but no, I, I saw it. I can literally, um, I have it. It says that it's free on Kindle if you have like yeah. whatever the thing is. So I, I will literally, uh, I have flights coming up next week and I need reading material. So I am down to read up on that and like, and get that because it okay. sounds great. Second book thing that I'm checking if you've, have you ever read the, the Drist Chronicles? Mm-mm. Okay. Oh my so, God, I'm failing all your tests. <laughs> you are, but it's okay. You're new to D&D, but these are, these are all, uh, so the cool thing about, uh, for our not Forgotten Realms, but uh, the uh, um, Dragonlance series is yes. they were all live played Dungeons and Dragons. So, oh, that like, might be why I wasn't like. Yeah, super- and this is like early. So I I've been playing D and D since I was six, and I'm 28. Oh now. wow! So okay, I, yo. I, there's no gatekeeping. <laughs> there's no gatekeeping. I always like new play. New players coming in are the best. They are honestly, I prefer playing with new players than old players. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it's just a better experience normally. So. Well, okay, wait. So tell me what the second one's called. It's called the Drist Chronicles. I think it's D R Y Z Z T. Y-Z-Z-T. I'm awful at spelling. It's yes, got them. D-R-I-Z-Z-T. No, there you go. So he's, okay, he's, he's a drow elf who abandons his entire culture because uh, the drow are very... We uh, don't really like the drow. I know I, our first campaign was against the drow. <laughs> but the cool thing about these books is they tell you a lot of like the back history of the drow and like what the drow families do. It, so like uh, huge D&D rant here. Um, the drow families are pretty known for this. It, technically, it's a huge city. It's called mm-hmm. Mozambique. And they're not allowed to technically attack each other, kind of. So the way that it works is if they do, like there's a bunch of families and they all mm-hmm. vie for power and there's like a ranking system for families. But if you kill yeah. the family who's above of you, um, you take their spot in like the ranking. But you can't actually kill them. So I'm sure so it's the way that it works. And espionage. No, and- it's even worse. It's even worse. So what happens is there's you if you decide to declare war, you have 24 hours to literally eradicate every single person in the family and everyone oh. will turn a blind eye for 24 hours. So if, and that's what happens. They do like these huge raids where they will like raid another person. If they succeed in errat- they literally need to kill everyone. It does not like if one family member survives, then what happens is it goes to like this council and the person who did the attack is found guilty and their entire family is eradicated. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) So it's like this really weird. And so uh, the story, the premise is uh, you get to learn a lot about like drow culture that you normally wouldn't get in D&D because it's just a lot of really old school D&D stuff. Um, And it's also based on a similar a similar, uh, I, I believe that he based it off of Dungeons and Dragons because he uses Forgotten Realms, which is a playable area in D. Yeah. So yeah, but it's Wait, great. That's cool. Okay, so I love anything like that. I used to be super into League of Legends lore, like give me Mass Effect lore, Halo lore. Like I, I love learning about lore. So that sounds yeah. like a ton of fun. You, I have that pulled like up it. on Amazon too. Yeah. So yeah, you can. I'm excited about reading material. They're, they're quick reads. Um, it's really cool. Uh, so you'll, you'll like all of those. I'll I'll get the the uh, for the Dragonlance ones. You do have to read them in kind of a weird order because they put out some books later on. Um, so I will okay. try I will try to find the actual correct order because it's a little bit confusing. Um, but there's nine. I think there's no there's twelve books. There's twelve books you can read that I think are like mm-hmm. the good ones. 
And then outside of that, I think the other books were kind of meh. Mediocre, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but no, I see. Oh God, I love it. I love D and so much. So it makes me well, happy. I'm excited to learn about it. No, I love it. And I love reading. Um, I, again, I, once, uh, we were talking about it a little bit before we went live. I have not tried D and D online, so you'll have to tell me more about that. But obviously once COVID kind of yeah. blows over, I'm excited to see if I can't find a, a group in LA now that I'm here. Um, yeah. I'm sure many of them exist. So yeah, certainly, certainly. So it should be exciting. So you mentioned that you're from D.C. Is that where you're originally from? Like, is that where you were born and raised? No. So I was technically born in Northern California, but I only lived there for about two years. So it doesn't really, really count. Okay. So I just I, I mentioned it to be technically correct. Okay. But uh, I grew up in Washington State, so I'm a Pacific okay. Northwest girl. Um, I was there until I was 18 and left for college. So go Seahawks. Uh, they're my guys. You can see them on my console table, my little my little Seahawks skull. But uh, yeah, so Pacific Northwest girl through okay. and through. So probably a question that you have met. What did your parents do growing up? Um, so my mom was stay at home. She was very involved in politics, which really? I didn't pay. I didn't pay much attention to that at the time. I, I found out as I've got older, um, a lot of things, I guess I kind of absorbed subliminally without yeah. necessarily re realizing it. I think everyone goes through that yes. as they get older, they start to realize the things they picked up from their parents, good and bad. Yeah. Um, but so my mom was stay at home. Uh, and one of kind of my biggest regrets with her was that she would cook homemade meals every night. She's an excellent cook. And I just could not be bothered. I, I didn't like when I got home from school, I didn't want to hang out with my mom and learn how to cook. But I regret that so much now that I'm older because I would probably be at least a capable cook but you can't if cook? I had taken the time uh, not at all um really? i can make salad which doesn't involve cooking anything okay so i, I okay the trick to cooking because i love cooking as well is just don't cook too fast like slow down that's like the if, if there was any one piece of advice i could give to anyone who wants to get into cooking um just expect to take longer and cook everything really slow and you'll probably be okay because most of okay. the time, most of the time people turn the temperature up too high because they want to cook things too fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, then what happens is they, they burn everything. Um, and that's okay. Just... So keep it slow. I don't know if you guys can hear this. My cat's like meowing at me. Can, screen. Actually. He's, yeah. he's yeah. very, he's very dramatic. I'm sure he'll make an appearance at some point. But um, so my mom uh, to kind of pull it back was stay at home and involved herself in politics. Uh, my dad, on the other hand, used to work with Keebler and Pepsi, uh, both for a long time. He was a VP at uh, Pepsi for a long time. Really? He, yes. So he ended up leaving because it was so cutthroat and toxic yeah. that um, he spent more time trying to save his job from backstabbing coworkers than he did actually doing his job, which is why uh, he he's with Starbucks now. He's been with Starbucks for about 15 years. That's why he, um, he told me this. He stopped accepting promotions at a point because – um, he didn't want to deal with it anymore. He was like, I love my coworkers. I love my group where I'm at now. I'm happy with my job. I'm happy with my environment. I don't want to pursue anything beyond that because happiness stops at a point. So I, I liked kind of that life lesson from him that it was like, you don't always have to advance because sometimes what you advance into will give you fame and glory and, and money, but you'll be miserable. Yeah. And that was something that he discovered. But his time at Pepsi uh, was very important to me because Pepsi back in the day did a lot of Nintendo 64 giveaways. Mm -hmm. And my dad uh, brought some Nintendo 64s home once upon a time. 
And I was like a kid on Christmas morning. And so that was, that was my first actual console is the N64. So shout out to my dad and shout out to Pepsi for the giveaways. (laughs) Cause that's how I was able to get my first console. So slight side question. Are you more of a Pepsi girl then than a Coke girl? Cause I, I like Coke. I prefer Coke any day over Pepsi. Okay. So none of the above. I hate soda. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's fair at least like <laughs> I don't like any of them. So um I I don't really like carbonation. Oh. Uh, I I tolerate it in champagne and white claws, but that's about it. Um there's something so there's something about it it just burns me. Okay. Like it, it there it, to some people I guess it tastes refreshing and crisp, but to me I'm like my mouth is on fire and I'm dying. That's weird. So I just I just never drank anything fizzy growing up. I'm like a water tea, occasionally I'll do a coffee. Okay. Um, but yeah, champagne and white claw are about as wild. And crazy I like how you I, white claw out of all the things you can choose <laughs> to be like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to substitute it out for white claw. Like, that's okay. I'll accept it there. Like white claw's not you know even what? that good. Priorities. Priority. I know, but like, I've got to be stereotypical in some ways and I'm going to go down on the sinking ship of white claw. Cause I, I fended it off for a long time and then I finally tried it. Low key. It's not bad. It's pretty good. They're okay. They're Okay. I'm, I'm just saying, like, if you didn't like carbonation, you could just drink, uh, like, vodka and cranberries. Oh, or- oh, oh, but see, like, so while carbonation burns, vodka just tastes like ass water to me. Don't don't ask. I got that phrase from Pac-Man when we were in CWL two years ago. If, you, if you're curious about where that came from, ask Pac-Man. But I, I can't do, I don't like hard liquor very much at all. I can do it in cocktails with, like, an egg white component because that kind of makes it a little more mild. But I can't uh, any anything like that. I'm a bit of a sissy. I oh. smell vodka and I'm like, I don't like it. <laughs> OK, OK. Do you shake up your white cloths so they're flat? I could see you doing that, too. Wait, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, you can do that. People do that with soda. I don't I, don't I don't drink. So I never learned that. Trick oh, that's yeah. I didn't drink. Well, Wait, so that's a thing. Uh, you want to be careful, because obviously. But if you it were to, ex- if, yeah, but if you were to pour out a white claw early, it will eventually lose its carbonation. So it would actually be completely flat. And then you'd have a, okay. a flat white claw. That sounds disgusting, to be honest, because I like carbonation, but uh, it might be That's more. so interesting. So usually what I do, and this is might sound gross to you too, is like with champagne and with white claws, I will wait a little bit so it warms up. Not so it's warmer room hmm. temperature. It's like cool instead of like ice cold because the carbonation's so much worse when it's yeah. super, super, super cold. So I'll wait for it to warm up a little bit and then I'm good to go for the most part. But yeah, the bubbles still get me. I I don't know. I never like grew into liking carbonation. Like I said, I just kind of tolerate it for my love of champagne. Yeah, no, I mean, that 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 kind of makes sense. So your dad worked at Pepsi. Your mom was involved in politics. What did she do with politics? Um, so she was local ground level. Um, she, she just liked to be involved, whether it was a kind of really, really based grassroots ground level. Um, she would kind of go out and do, uh, the, the picketing town hall meetings, kind of just being one of the voices. Um, I, I never paid much attention to yeah. it when I was younger because my entire life was essentially school sports and then playing as much final fantasy 11 as I could. Um, but yeah, she was, she was very grassroots. So what kind of kid were you growing up? Because it seems like you had a very stereo. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to stereotype you, but it sounds like a very stereotypical, like, uh, like pretty nice life. Like you did sports, you were into things. What was what was it like for you? What type of person were you growing up? 
Yeah, uh, so it was very stereotypical. I was extremely fortunate in my upbringing. Uh, I lived in middle, upper class suburbs of America, um, you know, gated neighborhood, nice house. I had acreage, dogs, cats, chickens, the whole shebang. Um, I, I was extremely blessed. Um, I was, my parents were able to provide for the sports I wanted to do, soccer, track. You know, I was able to learn skiing as I grew up. Uh, they provided me kind of everything that I needed. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say the, the greatest blessing I ever got from my dad was that um, two things that he never just bought me things to buy them. He always yeah. told me that if I could truly show him that I wanted it, then he would get it for me. But if I just came to him and was like, I really want this thing, he'd be like, kick a rock. I'm not I'm not doing that for you. So I appreciated that from him because yes, I'm spoiled, but I think it mitigated <laughs> kind of kind of how much yeah. uh, how how bad I got. But the second thing was that he never asked questions when I wanted to read. So he would take me at the time to uh, Barnes and Noble or or anywhere else, and and he would let me go wild. I could bring a stack of books to him, and no questions asked, he would buy it all for me. Mm. And he always encouraged my love of reading, which I, I think fed into kind of my love of video games by yeah. extension, because I became a voracious reader through it. Uh, but honestly, it was it was a very stereotypical upbringing. I think the only thing that kind of was different with me was my love of video games, um, which unfortunately led to, I I hit it for a long time, essentially all the way through, through college. I, I hit it as best I could because I got, um, I, I faced a decent amount of bullying growing up from folks, from my friends who didn't understand it, from my girlfriends, from my guy friends, um, from people who just, you know, all the stereotypes, they thought it was lame. They thought I was going to be Cartman with Cheeto dust under my fingernails in my Mm -hmm. basement. That was what my mom's fear was. Um, so I hit it for a long time, but all intents and purposes, uh, a very fortunate upbringing and uh, a lot of time to play video games. Yeah, I, I actually, for Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I actually hit that. Yeah. M- much of the same reason, because until like really like five years ago or like six years ago, like with Critical Role coming out, D&D was not the super popular thing it is. Now, now it's like yeah. mainstream, like everyone likes it. But Oh, it's like hip now. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm happy. It may, it's a lot easier to to find groups. It's a lot easier to find. It's mm-hmm. it's not awkward to ask someone, "Hey, do you want to play Dungeons and Dragons?" Or like, "Oh, I'm either interested or no, nah, it's not really my thing." But it's no longer this this stereotype. And I remember video games sometimes being like that too, where people would just uh, rag at you because it wasn't sports. It wasn't, which is a very odd thing looking now. Like right, like hindsight, it's got to be weird looking at the the climate of what video games is now um, comparative to to then. Like, do you ever oh, sometimes absolutely. like wish you were just like born like 10 years later so you didn't have to go through that stuff? Well, I I mean, in, in some ways, yes, because my life would have been easier. But also, I think you need hardships in life. Yeah. Uh, I, you can't live in a bubble growing up or you never learn how to deal with adversity, whether you cause the adversity for yourself or it's brought upon you by other people. Um, I, I, I think it is it no one should ever be bullied, but yeah. I will use that experience to better myself. Yeah. Um, and it was also kind of a nice moment. My, my dad was always all for it. He, he was happy that I was happy. And yeah. if video games fueled my happiness, then he was happy to encourage it. My mom was very much so the opposite. And uh, I do take a, a good amount of pressure, pleasure in, uh, you know, needling her every now and again and being like, you know, I make my living off of this now. So I'm just just telling you that you were wrong <laughs> and I was right. Um, but but no, I think uh, I will try and utilize that adversity yeah. for for better things growing up. 
was that ever hard growing up then like what would she do to like you playing video games would she someone who would like cut out the internet would she someone like no you're just not allowed to do this or what was that like because i know that my uh my mom was actually very much against video games too and she would like limit just like how much i could do things Oh yeah. She, um, would cut off the internet. Um, but a lot of it would oftentimes be, um, kind of belittling comments and it it was belittling comments along with a complete absence of support. And, and the absence of support was what really hit me the most. Um, so final fantasy 11, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was the first MMORPG in the final fantasy series from square Enix. Um, it, it's a, it's still running now. Um, but I played it religiously, um, realistically at, at a, probably like a competitive level as I was growing up, com- competition didn't exist at that point, but I was doing server first world first rating, uh, when the expansions would come out and I loved it, but I also met a, a lot of wonderful people online yeah. from all over the world. And my mom hated it. She hated it. She thought that they were all rapists and murderers and pedophiles and she constantly would belittle it. Yeah. She never asked questions. She, she was always like, why are you wasting so much time? Go outside, go sit outside. And I'd be like, but mom, there's nothing for me to do outside. And she'd be like, I don't care. Just sit outside. Yeah. So I would sit on my patio in the sun on the occasions where there were sun in Washington and do nothing. I did. I didn't have a phone. I would just twiddle my, I'd twiddle my thumbs and just exist. And I was like, in my mind, it didn't make sense because yes, I was outside, but when I was inside, I was engaging with people and learning and talking and making friendships and problem solving and doing things. And it, it was just hard because it was a constant disdain from her in small little ways all the time. Yeah. And just, I think it would have made a world of difference if she had just once asked me to show her what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I never got that from her. And that strained our relationship for a really long time. And at school, it was the same thing. Um, I, I would mention it and people would be like, you play video games. First off, it'd be this sexist reaction, which at the time, I, I don't think they quite realized yeah. that. But I get the, but you're a girl, like yeah. girls don't play video games or you're, you're probably ass or, you know, you suck or this or that. Or if I was playing Halo online or Call of Duty online, you'd get all the horrible things people would say in your headset. Um, but at school too, I would, people would always shut it down. No one was ever like, wow, that's really cool. They were always either like indifferent or kind of gave me the look of what's wrong with you. Yeah. Like as it, it, they looked at video games as if I was using video games to like hide from being a normal person. Mm -hmm. And that was always, um, that was always really hurtful. Honestly, all the way through college, I was in a sorority in college. I know they were, they were, they were not very open to it either, but, um, yeah, suffice to say it was not, it was not easy, but in the grand scheme of things, there's also far greater challenges that I know folks have dealt with growing up, but it, you know, I, I'm just sad that it, it taught me, for the first probably 22 to 23 years of my life, it taught me to hide a passion. Yeah. And that is very sad because I don't think anyone should hide their passions. Now, one of the interesting things about you is you eventually went to college for finance with a minor in economics, if I have that correct. Yes. Um, Do you think that because of this hate towards video games, it stopped you from going into something that maybe you would have been more passionate about? Absolutely, Uh, 100%. Because I had this mindset and I've said it actually before. And now that I look back, 
it doesn't really make sense. But I would always say um, I never had any any skills that were applicable to the video game industry. Yeah. I never had any of the things. I couldn't code. I couldn't do any of these things. Well, maybe the reason I couldn't do any of those things is because I thought that I shouldn't mm-hmm. or that I couldn't. Yeah. And that's a great point. I, I mean, I think there was a lot of it that I was consistently told that this was something I enjoyed that I should hide because it's not normal and I can't pursue it because not only is it not normal, but it's not financially feasible and I'll never get anywhere in life and I'll never accomplish anything. And so, yeah, I, I, I never did anything with my finance major. Yeah. <laughs> like I enjoyed it, but I basically have a fancy piece of paper that I never did anything with. And I do look back sometimes and wonder if, if I'd been encouraged like if I've been born, you said 10 years later, yeah. if I've been encouraged to pursue this industry, pursue things like, like learn to code, learn, learn all of that. Um, was there anything that you were passionate about at the time that you were like, I really want to do this? Or did you get did you believe in the facade that, oh, you know what? I really want to do finance and economics. I know that I kind of had this facade for my parents like, mm-hmm. oh, you really want to do this. And I almost believed it at first. And it took me a long time to figure out what I actually wanted to do. But I believe this facade of what my parents told me all the time. Did you have something that you were passionate about? Uh, So I I never did. I always um, and even up until now, I've always kind of felt like I was just existing. Yeah. Um, And I think that was kind of one of the downsides of having such a cushy upbringing was that I never really had to fight or strive for anything ever. You know, I wasn't golden spoon per se, but I was really comfortable. I, I went to the college. My older brother went to, it was the only college I applied to because I knew I'd get in. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to try. I never worried about getting into college. I never worried about anything. So I kind of just coasted and I, I didn't have any passions. And that's something I stressed about in college. Like I was passionate about video games, but I had already in my mind been like, that's not something you can use to put bread on the table and food on the table. So I kind of just did finance because it was the lesser of all evils. Nothing inspired me. I was not interested by anything. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to do any of these things. So I was like, I guess finance sounds tolerable. Yeah. And that's not why you should be getting a degree. You shouldn't be spending all that money to do something that's tolerable because you're supposed to. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, so, so I kind of just, I kind of just coasted through it and checked that box. And I, I think looking back now, a lot of my life was just kind of checking boxes and just floating, which isn't, wasn't a bad thing, but I, I never really felt like I had a purpose or a drive for anything to truly, you know, strive for. Do you think that that hurt you? That hurt you not having to, that being comfortable, you were comfortable all the time. Do you think that that hurt you kind of later on in life? Like when you eventually had to not be comfortable? Oh, profoundly, because I, I, I think that allowed me to be very easily molded Yeah, because I never had to question anything. I was always surrounded by love and affection and trust and nurturing. So I, I never challenged or or pushed back against anything that I was taught or that I was shown because I was always just given um, affection and opportunities. Yeah, I, I never had to think beyond where I was. And yeah, so I, I think it was 100% detrimental to me because um, I I just coasted from thing to thing and never had to stop to say, is this good? Is this bad? 
I just was. And yeah, yeah I, I think that that was 100% detrimental to me. Did people manipulate that in you? Because that seems like something that would be so manip easy to be manipulated. And there are people out there who just kind of do that. They just manipulate people who they can. Was that something that happened um, to you? <laughs> well, once I went to D.C., um, yes. D.C. and the political culture was a roller coaster. Um, I think there's some people who do that intentionally, but for the most part, I think it was passive. Yeah. Um, I think it was it was very passive. Here's my ideology. Um, I want to bring you into this ideology. And how much resistance will you give me in bringing you into this? Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think passively more often than not. But yes, 100 percent people people see people like me who were moldable. Yeah. And they mold them. Yeah. That's what they did. So looking at college, uh, one of the cool things about you, and this is, I won't lie, this is very, I feel like stereotypical. You were a cheerleader. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm cheerleader like, is, like, I'm sorry, that is very stereotypical, it but is, it, 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 so it, is, it is, like, all I need for you to do is honestly have a pumpkin spice latte and it would oh, probably- Oh, I don't like pumpkin, that's my saving grace. I don't like pumpkin. Okay, 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 you're good. <laughs> But no, yeah, I, I was cheerleader. I did. I did the whole sorority bells and whistles. And then I I hid at night to do my rage group for Final Fantasy 14 at the time. That must have been. Did, did it ever eat at you? Like having to hide it from like, I can't imagine like I can't imagine being friends with someone and then hiding such a big part of my life. Like, are they really friends if I can't even talk to them about what's going on? Um, I, they, they were friends in a way they weren't, I, I would say, yes, they were my friends. They were not, um, profound friendships. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have much love for my sorority and for my, for my friends, but I will say cheerleading. I never quite felt like I fit in even my sorority. I had my dear friends. Uh, I keep in close contact with my little now to, yep. uh, Emma up in New York. I love her to pieces, but other than that, I don't really. And I think, Part of that, again, was just it seemed like something I was supposed to do. Yeah. Like you you rush a sorority and and of course you try out for cheerleading because why not? And I did all of those things, but I I never it always felt like it was putting, I guess, a a square block through a round hole. So very disingenuous. And, Yes. And it just, I, I never felt comfortable and I never felt like me. And I always felt a little bit awkward. And I, I'm sure a part of that was because I, I did have to hide a large portion of myself. And when I did show it to people, they treated it like it was embarrassing. So mm -hmm. I would just hide it even more. Like we lived in an off-campus house my senior year and my sorority sisters would have people over all the time. And I would oftentimes hide away in my room because I had to raid or I had to do whatever. And they would text me and be like, stop playing video games. No one cares. Like come hang out with us. And yeah. I'd be like, I'd be like, but I, I care. And I'd be like, well, I, I promised these people I'd do this thing and she'd be, and they wouldn't get it. They'd be like, they're online. Who cares? They're probably weirdos. Stop being weird. And I was, I, I never understood how it was weird. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I would just kind of try and hide, hide it away and I wouldn't do a very good job, but I would try. Did you ever feel a little bit jaded? Like you lost years of your life following this like normalized script of life of things that you're supposed to do? That's that's an interesting question. I I think that I probably lost a more authentic journey to myself and yeah. my true loves and passions. But 
I mean, it, it, it had its benefits, right? Yeah. Like I did, you know, I, I was blessed enough in my life to go to college when my parents paid for college, to come out of it with no debt, to have a college degree, to get a great liberal arts education. There was a lot of blessings that came out of it, but I mean, it put me on a trajectory for many years of my life that wasn't authentic to who I am. And I eventually course corrected that when I realized I could course correct it. But yeah, I mean, the first 25 years of my life, realistically, who knows how different it could have been if if my love of video games, my love of reading, my love of kind of being more of an introvert was embraced as a good thing and encouraged. Like who knows where I would be right now. Mm -hmm. So you get done with college and you almost have this i believe you said an existential crisis that's something you've said in multiple interviews that i have seen um like leaving college what happens after college you have this finance degree with a minor in economics are you just like (laughs) what the hell do i do with my life now because obviously you got the internship which Mm -hmm. uh happened there and you took that uh but what was this existential crisis like for you I felt like I was basically having a midlife crisis and I wasn't even to my midlife crisis stage yet. So the summer before my senior year, um, I was already starting to panic and having that crisis because I didn't care about finance. I knew I was going to finish out my finance degree. I didn't want anything to do with finance. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't care. I didn't have like the cutthroat mentality to succeed in it. So I was like, what what the hell am I going to do? Just get some paper pushing job that I'm going to hate every hour of every day. Mm-hmm. And a family friend at the time was over at our house uh, in Washington having dinner. And um, funny enough, uh, so my parents and this family friend had kind of pushed this particular college on me for a very long time because it fit their political and ideological beliefs. And I never questioned it because it was easy. Like I never needed to question it and I was never given a reason to question it. Um, So he came over and he was like, Hey, if you don't know what you're interested in doing, uh, I know that you've got a good head on your shoulders and you're uh, uh, an avid reader and you're a good writer. You excel in all of your English classes, history classes, would you be interested in an internship in Washington, D.C. in journalism? Mm -hmm. And I was like, all I heard from that was guaranteed paid job after college. Cool. So I said yes. Yeah. Because I could just coast into the next thing. And uh, it was it was very generous of him. So I changed around and added in some journalism classes in my senior year. Uh, I kind of coasted through those two because they weren't that hard, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, unlike math, math was, <laughs> whoo, I'm terrible at math. And math was always the subject that was just like the big demon in the room for me growing up. So English classes, writing classes were easy. So I kind of coasted through that. And then right same day of graduation, I walked across the stage. I didn't go to any of the graduation parties. I packed up my house and I drove with my mom from uh, from Michigan down to D.C., and started my internship that next week. And I just kind of coasted right into it. So journalism, again, same with finance and college was something that was just presented to me and it was an easy option to take. So I took it. Mm -hmm. First of all, I'm from Michigan. So I do like that you, you threw that in there. I'm actually from the UP of Michigan originally. Go. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Hillsdale was right down here on the Michigan. (laughs) You you do the Michigan hands. Nice. Yes. 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 So so I was, I was right down in Southern Michigan. I'm from up here. 
like as mm-hmm. far north as you can pretty much go in oh, Michigan. The wildlands. So, yes. The, yes. The, <laughs> the wildlands. Now you mentioned uh, your brother and we haven't really touched on him, but uh, tell me a little bit about your brother. Like how much older is he than you? So my brother, Joey, is two years older than me, uh, two years, 10 days. His birthday is February 10th. My birthday is February 20th. Mm-hmm. So the only reason I was able to remember it. Um, I, I love my brother. He and he is similar to me in that he followed a prescribed path that he went on because it was what was expected of him. Mm-hmm. And my my dad originally growing up. My dad had a big switch. He used to be all business all the time to provide for the family. He took a lot from his dad. Um, I I don't know if my dad kind of looks at it this way now, but from what I've learned, because I hardly knew him, his mom and dad passed away when I was very young. Um, But his dad was, um, I don't want to say emotionally abusive. I think he was extremely emotionally stunted. He did not know how to show affection. He did not know how to show love. He didn't hug his children. He was not close to his children. Uh, My mom said that in the time that she knew my dad's uh, dad, my grandpa, that she never once heard him say, I love you to his son. And I think that... Uh, as we do, we pick up on a lot of traits from our parents and, and my dad was affectionate, but he had this mindset of work, work, work to provide for the family. You are the breadwinner. You are the, the male of the family. You're the husband. You are the, the father. So work. So that's all he did was work all the time. And he had, he had very rough edges. So um, when I was growing up, my parents used to get in really bad fights when I was younger. And um, I remember very distinctly one time that uh, I was woken up in my bedroom from from screaming downstairs. And I was I grabbed my blanket and I walked to the banister at the top of the staircase. And I remember just sitting there grabbing the bars of the banister crying because I could hear my parents screaming and I didn't understand why or yeah. what was going on. It was just that childlike visceral understanding of wrongness. Yeah. There was something very wrong happening. And I'll, I remember that forever, very vividly, just hearing them screaming and not understanding why. And uh, as I got older, my dad's rough edges started to smooth. Um, it was, it was kind of like, as I got older, the love his mother gave him started to overwhelm the harsh edges of his father's upbringing. Mm -hmm. And, um, now my parents ended up getting divorced. And I think that my, my dad felt, and he's told this to me, my dad felt like he ruined the marriage, which isn't the case. It's always, it's always both sides of the coin. But my dad is the most loving, emotional. He kind of swung way in the other direction. He's Italian, so he's always super emotional now, affectionate, loves hugs, loves human contact, has a world and an ocean of love to give people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now I have a phenomenal relationship with my dad. I never had a bad relationship with him. It just wasn't close. Yeah. And now it's very close. But why I told you all of this is because my dad pushed onto my brother a need to follow that stereotype, go to college, go into business, be a breadwinner, be a businessman, be a provider. Yeah. Because that's all my dad ever knew. So that's what he he attributed success as a man to being. Yeah. And 
my brother didn't fit that mold. My brother is a free and deep thinker. He's very philosophical. He's an excellent communicator, but his head floats in the clouds a lot of the time. And he he's more, uh, I, I don't want to say hippie because that's not quite the right word, but he's very free thinking, free flowing human. Okay. So he tried to fit my dad's mold as best he could, but Again, same with me, uh, you know, maybe for him, round, round into a square, if you will. It fit, but it, there was a lot of space there that didn't make sense. Yeah. So my brother ended up getting kicked out of college for for weed, which I still to this day think is the stupidest thing ever. Mm-hmm. But uh, the college we went to was pretty strict about things like that. Um, he ended up working his ass off to get back into that college and he, he finished his degree and graduated the same year as I did. Two years older than me, but graduated with me, which was pretty cool to be able to graduate with my brother. Yeah. Um, but he didn't do a damn thing with his degrees either. He had a double major in communication and philosophy. He thrived in his philosophy major, and he was really good at his comms major. He didn't do a damn thing with either of them. So he's back in Washington State now. I'm, I'm happy to say that him and I found our passions around the same times, even though he's two years older than me, we both took kind of the same amount of time to figure out what we loved. Mm -hmm. So uh, now my brother worked at the time. He he basically spent his entire twenties working minimum wage jobs to, and he penny pinched like I've never seen before. He was the most frugal human. He worked three jobs. His only day off was Sundays where he worked one job instead of three. And he did that almost the entirety of his 20s, lived a very frugal existence so that now he can do what he wants, which is um, he loves poetry. He loves philosophy and he's starting a farm in Washington State. He has a huge green thumb, which he gets from my mom, which got from my grandma on my mom's side. He can make anything grow. And he's so he's so how do I say this? Um, Inventive. Mm -hmm. He, he showed me a picture once in his apartment complex. He had this whole garden on his on his balcony yeah. and he had jerry rigged the water system in his apartment complex to go into a barrel to filter to get clean water for his plants so they wouldn't have to pay for it. Wow. <laughs> so he's, he's so good. His mind is so sharp in those ways. And so now he's he's starting a farm. He's doing agriculture, which he loves. He gets to write his poetry. Uh, write his books, smoke his pipe, live his life. And I'm, I'm very happy that he found his joy and passions the same way I do. And we're very different people, yeah. very different people, but I love him to pieces. Uh, mm-hmm. I love my brother so, so much. Um, we don't talk a ton, yeah, but there's nothing but love there between both of us. So um, yeah, he is similar to me that he kind of went through that prescribed pathway and then eventually found out that being true to yourself is the best path. And my dad's fully supportive of him now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad broke out of that mold too, of, of the mentality of this is the only thing that is correct. Yeah. And my dad uh, absolutely loves and supports my brother now too, which is great to see. Awesome. So kind of taking a backward step here for a minute. Um, you mentioned the stuff with your dad and him not being close growing up. Do you ever feel like you missed out on him on part of your life? Um, not, not really, because he was not particularly close, but he was also not particularly far away yeah. in that sense. Like he was always very affectionate with me. Uh, like I mentioned, he encouraged my love of video games yeah. unconditionally. He never asked a question in his eyes. 
And it, it was so funny that his stereotypes were definitely there for my brother, but yeah. they weren't really there for me. Yeah. He never tried to make me a stereotypical girl. Yeah. He was like, F it. If she likes to read and play video games, cool. That makes so sense. Um, I, I, uh, I always love that about my dad. So no, I, I don't necessarily think like there was a lot of friction with my mom uh, and I didn't see my dad a ton, but when yeah. I did see him, it was always warm and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, yeah, maybe I could have got more time with him, but um, I, he was a great, he was a great dad growing up. And I, I will always appreciate that he made that sacrifice of less time with us to provide for yeah. us everything we could have wanted, mm-hmm. which realistically I kind of would have wanted more time with my dad. But I get a lot of that now. My dad is is healthy and happy now. He had a series of of health scares a number of years ago, uh, a stroke and then prostate cancer very Ooh. close together. But um, he's in remission, and it was a it was a minor stroke, so he's he's great now. Okay. Um. So hopefully, I have a, a lot more years, yeah, happy years, yeah. with my um, with my pops around. I'm, I'm happy he's doing okay. So you mentioned that your mom you had friction for a while. Um. So mm-hmm. what was that like, and when did it? You I'm assuming now it's better. Um, when did that start to get better? So unfortunately it it has not uh, gotten better. It's kind of opposites as my relationship with my dad improved. My relationship with my mom has declined. I have nothing but love for her, but, um, she is someone who will never apologize. She's very set in her ways. And she's someone who will back into a corner and swing before she ever apologizes for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can off the top of my head, remember her saying the words, I'm sorry once ever. And that was within the last year of my life. Wow. And those words were to me. I've never heard her say it to my dad. Um, she's, she's one of the hardest working people I know, but so stubborn as a mule, very hard headed and not very open to learning or changing her opinions. Mm -hmm. And that has consistently caused more and more friction because she was the one who initiated the divorce on my father. Yeah. Uh, she didn't want to try. Um, my, my dad tried so hard to save it and she just wasn't willing to do anything. And um, both of them, which wasn't okay. Both of them put me in the middle of their divorce. How old as were kind you? Of, uh, this was occurring during college. Okay. So um, I guess you would say like 20 to yeah. 19 to, to 23 ish. Mm-hmm. They, the divorce was finalized right around the time that I was graduating. Yeah. Um, and they both used me as their confidant and their emotional crutch. And it's, you can't use your child as an emotional yeah. crutch for watching their parents get a divorce. Yeah. So that, that, caused me to get closer to my dad. There was friction with my dad for doing that to me, but I understood that he didn't have anyone else he could lean on. Yeah. Um, so I got closer to my dad and got farther away from my mom because I felt how my mom handled it was very poor. Yeah. Um, in the grand scheme of things. And unfortunately I think what my mom was looking for within that divorce, she never found. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she was kind of trying to reclaim her lost twenties, if you will. And she was never able to do that. And I think she's kind of become more jaded, more closed minded and more hostile, the older she's got, which has been very hard for me to see because obviously I, I try and surround myself by a wealth of backgrounds, um, whether it's race, religion, creed, 
doesn't matter. I try and surround myself by so many different people to experience so many different worldviews. And my mom is exactly the opposite. So, so it's hard um, to talk to her a lot of the time. It's hard to relate to her a lot of the time because she just, it, you just know that you're basically smashing your head against a brick wall. Yeah. And I, I love her. I love my mom to pieces, but it's it's significantly more strained now than it ever was before, unfortunately. I'm sorry to hear that. I actually come from a triple divorce home. So my oh, parents- Oh, wow. I know. I, so I feel you on the divorce thing. So my parents divorced and then they got remarried and like both of them divorced. And my my dad and my stepmom, my stepmom who basically raised me, they divorced uh, like, uh, I was in my master's program when they divorced. That was like a few years ago now. Uh, but yeah, I, I understand that it does not. I feel like it doesn't get any easier. Like every single time it's happened, I'm just like, wow, this is awful every time. Like, yeah, well, I mean, I cannot speak to it multiple times. That sounds I mean, that just sounds like reliving a nightmare over and over. Frankly, oh. I know that for me, it, I was always so proud that my family was whole, yeah. if you will. And I was always so proud that my parents weren't divorced growing up, which is kind of a silly thing to be proud about, I guess. Yeah because I was prideful of it. Yeah. I was not, I was not like supportive. I was prideful about it. Yeah. And, um, I, I remember that I, I got so, I was so upset the first time after college when a holiday came up and I realized that I had to do the song and dance of going to both my parents' houses. Cause I couldn't just go to one. So yep. who gets Christmas Eve, who gets Christmas day? You know, who's do I go to for Thanksgiving? Do I go to both for Thanksgiving? And I was so bitter about that because it pissed me off that I had to deal with that now and, and the emotional burden of that and the favoritism that comes with it and the clear implications from parents of, uh, do they feel like they're the, the favorite parent or yep. not? And I, I just, I hated that. Cause I was like, I love both of you. And now you're making me pick these things and then putting this on me. And that's not fair. So that's, this might be a, a loaded question then. Do you think that a lot of your resentment for this uh, went more on your mom because of the the way that she handled it. Yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Okay, that's got to be really hard though, like dealing with uh, that level of resentment. Like, because I my biological mom, I actually don't talk to. Um, at mm -hmm. all. It, it's just I say biological mom because it's easier to separate because there's yeah, so many. Right, right, right. But um, yeah, no, I haven't talked to her in years. And actually, I had a lot of resentment for a lot of years actually because of the way that she handled things and the way that she treated me. Um, and I don't anymore. Uh, I accept that that's just who she is. And I think when you finally get there, it's nice. But I think up until that point, it, it just eats at you. I feel like, I feel like, cause there's no good way. Like you want your mom there. You want to have a relationship, but she's not making it possible. Yeah. I think eats at you is a, a great way to say it. Um, my, my mom went into a very dark place after the divorce. Cause again, I think she thought that she was going to find freedom and fun yeah. and ah, and she didn't find any of those things. And um, she took out a lot of it on me because my brother, bless his soul, love him to pieces, horrendous with keeping up with any of it. Don't try and text him. Don't try and call him. He's he's just, he's in la-la land all the time. So he's impossible to get a hold of. My parents kind of accepted that from my brother. They never accepted it from me. Yeah. So um, what ended up happening was that um, after, after the divorce, um, my mom went into a very bad place and she would... Um, she would send me horrible voicemails and text messages and calls and, um, just, I'm, 
I'm an awful daughter. I'm a failure. I don't love her. I'm, I'm selfish. Just all, all the things that you should never say to your child. And that, that kind of, I think created some irreparable cracks in the foundation of our relationship. Cause I would just have to sit there and, and, and eat this, eat this anger and this hate that I knew wasn't coming from me, but was being directed at me because I was the outlet. And um, eventually within this last year, it it caused me to completely distance myself from her. And our relationship's better since then. Um, She has apologized to me for the way that she treated me, but it's kind of like a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a PTSD per se necessarily, because it's not that, but I, have an anxiety now in speaking to my mom that I never used to have. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like texting with her. I hate calling because I always have this lingering fear that the call is going to be negative. Yeah. And I will base my calls with my mom around. Can I tell if she's in a good mood or not? And if she's in a good mood, then yeah, I'll call cause it's fluffy and easy and we'll just ignore everything and it's fine. And we'll talk about superficial things and whatever. But other than that, I just, I I don't speak to my mom nearly as much as I used to because of how she treated me during and after that divorce. Mm -hmm. Because now I just have this knee jerk fear that she's going to say terrible things to me and I don't want to hear those things. So even if it's going to happen or not, I I just have distanced myself from her very significantly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's going to be really hard though, going through like all of this like you don't really know what you want to do with your life and you're kind of going through the motions and then you're just being pushed on further. That would be, that would be really hard. Um, looking at going into the political world, you get this internship and you just kind of do it cause it was handed to you. What was that like going there? Cause it almost like, it seemed like you were just willing to do um, what was put in front of you, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of is. What was that? What was that like for you? Um, so, at the time, obviously, all of this in the background, all of this divorce yeah. and, and pain with my mom was occurring yeah. when all of this was happening. Um, so when I went to D.C., I didn't know anyone there. I kind of knew about politics, but didn't really care about politics. Yeah. It was again, it was just a paid job that was a path for me. And um, so I, I went through this internship. I was I was placed with the Daily Caller. I didn't really know anything about the Daily Caller. I I just again it was like that's where I was placed and cool. Uh, the people I was around were fun and energetic and and feisty and go getters and um, I I kind of found my home there because my home was broken. Yeah. Were you running away? I don't I don't think I was running away. I I'm definitely not someone who gets homesick. So. There was a part of me that enjoyed that I was on the other coast of the country so that it wasn't feasible for me to see my parents yeah. a lot. <laughs> so in that sense, maybe I was running away that that I I got as far away in America as I could from them. So I didn't have to see them. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that I was just looking for I was looking for home mm-hmm. and I wasn't questioning things and I liked to be liked yeah so it was just easy Mm -hmm. all of it was just easy so you get there and how much of it is them molding you to be whatever they want you to be um i i think i'd say maybe 70 30 because 
I was actually fairly, um, I would say center left in college, um, women's rights, um, you know, abortion. I was always, and I still am that this never really changed. Um, but I was always of the mindset of if it's your body, do whatever the hell you want with it. And as long as you're doing it of a sound mind, uh, then I don't care. Who am I to say what you should do with your body and your life? Mm-hmm. Um, I would. I, I. It's kind of the trope of um, socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Yeah. And I, I felt like that socially liberal, open-minded part of me was pushed down and tucked away. Yeah. To fit this mold in D.C. because D.C. is you are either left or you are either right. And there's no reason to be anything other than those two things because yeah. no one will care about you if you're not either rabidly left or rabidly right. No one gives a shit about the people in the middle because it doesn't get you clicks. It doesn't get you views and it doesn't get you viral tweets. Yeah. So I walked into the rabid right side of things and just molded myself into that again because it was easy. I didn't really have a lot of history on it. I didn't know. And this is not to excuse anything, but I I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was easy. And I allowed, call me a weak person because I was. I was not a strong enough person to hold on to the beliefs that I held because I don't like upsetting people and I don't like fighting with people. And I don't, funny enough, I didn't really like arguing with people. I liked being a part of something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I liked, I I really liked being a part of something. And, and maybe it's from hearing my parents fight the way they did growing up. But even now I'm not good with confrontation. Um, Yelling shuts me down. I get really quiet. I, I try to remove myself. So I think that part of me, that kind of socially liberal part of me, that open-minded part of me uh, was pushed down and tucked away in, in a box in my mind once I kind of started my journey into DC. Yeah, and I, I something that I've noticed as someone who uh, is definitely, I would say probably more center uh, for mm-hmm. like a lot of my political beliefs, um, probably very similar to you, uh, what you were saying there, very uh, socially uh, left and maybe more physically uh, a little bit more right um, is that when you get into those le- very extremes, it's almost like a group. It's almost like a cult. I don't know if there's another way to describe it other than a cult. The group but, think is very profound. Yeah. Very profound. Yeah. But so even if you say something and someone argues against it, you don't have to, you don't have to partake in that argument. You just go back to your people and you all talk about it and you all agree on like the same ideas and you talk about why all these people are wrong, but it's not really a discussion. <laughs> it's just let's oh. shit on this other person with our own little group, which you see from both sides. Oh, yeah. You you talk at each yes. other. Yeah. You do not talk to each other. You talk at each other, because at the end of the day, it's all about who gets the viral clip, who gets the clip that'll get retweeted the most, who gets the article that raises the most fuss. It's all about bigger and better and shock and awe. It's it's a lot of performative arts, almost, yeah. if you will. And almost everyone doesn't believe what's coming out of their mouth. They might on some level, yeah. but the way they say it and the passion in which they say it is very manufactured. It's very manufactured. A lot of things in D.C. are smoke and mirrors and and lies and echo chambers. That's great. Uh, Imagine said it in your chat. Echo chambers are very real. 
And, um, and no one, no one wants civil discourse because that doesn't bring in clicks, which is ad revenue, which is keeping you afloat. Journalism is in a really rough state right now, obviously because of the changes in, in demographics of younger generations want everything to be free, easily accessible. And right now that has caused journalism to slide into, um, clickbait and, and easy fluff articles that have no substance. Long form like this isn't as appreciated anymore People have gerbil brains, squirrel brains. <laughs> we just, we don't want to put the time into things anymore. And unfortunately, that incentivizes very low quality products in journalism. And mm-hmm. I was 100% a part of that. I I did my op-eds and my long form, which I always loved the most because it really made me think. Yeah. But I was also 100% a part of the clickbait, the shock and awe. And I, I mean, it kind of rots you from the inside out, realistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. So actually the journalism is always something I like to kind of like talk about. Mm-hmm. Cause I think, I think journalism is either dying or dead. Um, and I think that it's not going to be, I, I don't think it's actually journalism anymore. I think it's uh, kind of a facade to call it journalism. Cause that assumes that there's some level of ethics behind it. And a lot of times it's it doesn't. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't feel that way. Whereas I actually think that it's probably going, and you're still seeing this now with the way that the, the money works, it's moving towards individual content creators, I would say. A lot more yeah. um and i don't think that they have the maybe this is like a good thing because at least with journalists you expect them to have ethics with content creators they don't fall underneath the same life i actually don't like to call myself a journalist because there's an ethical requirement there. i call myself a content creator because i don't know mm-hmm. if i like am i considered a journal? i don't know it gets tricky like uh how does that work I, but content creators like you see things like where they take maybe uh like in esports maybe they'll take stuff from teams like if they were a journalist i would say that that's probably some sort of ethical dilemma there uh, from like oh, taking yeah. things. Um, content creators don't have that same thing, which scares me because where does the news go? Where do we get real content now if journalism is dead? Where do well, we you, find out what's true or not? I mean, that's a great thing. You're the the news you are consuming is through the lens of its producer. And yep. that's what people need to keep in mind. You are getting opinions and punditry. You're not getting straight news. And a great way of... <laughs> I, I, uh, so when I was running the daily walkthrough, it yep. was a news aggregation it was a newsletter that aggregated content. There were many esports sites that I blacklisted from my newsletter because they paraded straight news. They, they paraded opinion as straight news. And that was unacceptable to me. Yeah. Um, and one of the big tells of things like that is do these jur- journalists, do these news outlets, do they ever reach out to people they write stories about? Do they do the bare minimum of journalism to reach out to the subject of their story? No, it's probably an opinion piece then. Yeah. Uh, and and stuff like that always rubbed me the wrong way because it's lazy. First and foremost, it's laziness. And then they try and they have this holier than thou facade of, of and that's what I don't like. So many journalists have this holier than thou, I bring you the facts, yeah. but I can't even reach out to the people that I'm talking about. And I'm just like, I mean, toot your own horn, I guess, but your horns are all bent out of shape. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's all about clicks, isn't it? Like that's like, if oh, we look yeah. at, I mean, it, and clicks don't incentivize truth. Yeah. They don't. No. Cause uh, truth a lot of times is boring. Like, I'm sorry, exactly. but it, it it's is. It's not so. sensational truth. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay, if you're covering a serial killer, the truth is sensational yeah. enough that you can stick to the facts. But if if you're covering uh, if you're covering a scandal, if you're covering a press release, if you're covering 
say, uh, you know, something happening in the House or the Senate or or the acquisition of Bethesda by Microsoft. That's just boring. So you got to spice it up a little bit. And people think there's not an issue with doing that. But it is because it's not true and it's disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So you're working at. uh, Oh, God, I have to look now real fast. Daily Caller. Caller. If that's where you're. Yeah. Yep. Daily Caller. Uh, And you're you're fitting their mold. Was it a slow change of where your your values started to get down because i imagine if it was quick you might have been able to rebel but i imagine they do it very slowly um i i, I like i don't know how to describe it other than a cult because that's what cults do is that they very slowly change your value system that whatever it is to whatever they have but because you can't go quick because if you go quick people notice it but if you do a little bit each day then you slowly start to change a lot of times not realizing it um is that what kind of happened with you yes very much so and i do want to say i don't think that was an intentional thing I- by them. You know what I mean? I, I think they are very set in their beliefs. Yeah. So how they talk and how they act and how they behave will reflect the the genuine sincerity they have in that belief. Yeah. Um obviously that belief is trumped up and made extra when it's in social media and public, but they held the beliefs that they held. So that's what they espoused. I don't think it was an intentional, we want to mold these people into our little army of whatever. Yeah. I did. I'm trying not to sensationalize this, but yes, a hundred percent. So it it was very slow because I was in an internship. So I was learning, I was learning from these people and I wasn't questioning it. So as I learned, I learned what they gave me yeah. and I didn't question what they were giving me. And um, so, yeah, in that way, um, I, I learned journalism through the lens of, of clickbait. Uh, I learned journalism through the lens of what is going to be the hottest, what's going to be sensational, how to write a catchy headline. I'm real good at those. I'm going to talk to you later on about titles for (laughs) SEO. I'm just letting you know it's going to happen because I need help with that. (laughs) Uh, I'm and sincerely. So there's a very fine line in, in titles just to tease it right, right now is between um, an information gap and clickbait. Yeah. Two very different things that people uh, kind of don't don't often see. But to answer your question, yes, it was kind of a slow and steady march toward closed minded um, singular thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, I it, it was it was fun. It, yeah. We we went out. We had a softball team. We went out drinking all the time. Everyone was great and happy and fun. Everything was fun. And it's it's really easy to absorb yourself into something when everything's just fun. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. One of the things we were discussing is you being at the Daily Caller. Uh, you go from being an intern to an editor. Is that just a really quick jump? Like you did a good enough job. They're like, hey, do you want to be on board? Uh, yeah, essentially. So during my internship, I kind of went out of my way, get in early, leave late, even things like cleaning up around the office. I just wanted to kind of give that extra effort because yeah. I wanted to get a job at the end of the internship. Uh, and, and funny enough, when I went in, I was the video intern. So that was how I learned to edit videos. And um, through that, though, they also found out because I kept being like, how can I help? How can I help? And they would be like, well, you can try editing some of these easier pieces. And they were kind of the fluff pieces, the entertainment pieces, the, you know, she said, he said, whatever. And um, they found out that I was pretty good at editing. And so they gave me more and more and more. And then my internship became less video and more kind of full-time editor intern. 
So yeah, yeah, when, uh, when I was brought on, they offered me the job as a junior editor for them. And, um, I said, yes. Uh, cause again, um, I, I enjoyed working there. Everyone was fun. The off it, it was, I will say it was the best office environment I've ever been in. Yeah. It, it was just a ton of fun. Everyone talked. It, it was very communicative. Um, so I wanted to stay there cause I, I had friends there now and I was offered a job. So great. Yeah. So yeah, I, I said, I said yes. And then, uh, became a, a junior editor for the collar. Awesome. So you started working at the collar and you eventually moved on to the Daily Caller News Foundation. What is mm-hmm. the difference between the two there? So the Daily Caller News Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason that they established that was because there was folks at the Daily Caller who wanted to do more of that long form investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what the Daily Caller News Foundation did. Obviously, it had a very clear right leaning bent to it. Um, but their primary goal was to use uh, as a nonprofit, use outside funds to help support long form investigative journalism. Okay. I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you're working there and you worked there for right around two years. And one of the things I'm actually kind of surprised about, and this is something that for me, I think was destroyed from a long time because of my parents divorced, yeah. um, is this idea of marriage. Uh, cause I, for the longest time, said I, I told my girlfriend this too for like many years because we've been dating five years now um for many years i was like well, i'm never getting married like i'm sorry but it's just <laughs> it's never going to happen um, it wasn't until like year three or year four of our dating like in between that i was like okay i might consider this a possibility um so but you you actually did get married because you used to go by a different last name and then you got married mm-hmm. uh, to someone who is the senior editor at a uh, different publication so mm-hmm. what what was that like? Your your viewpoint of marriage wasn't completely destroyed. Well, so so funny enough, um, I was super against marriage and being tied down um, up until DC, and that was um, it, it, this is going to end up being very long winded, but um, it, it was through all of this that I when I when I mentioned before that I just wasn't a strong enough person to yeah. stand up for myself. That's something that played out a lot in um, my marriage as well. And and not in a negative way toward him, but just yeah. within my own beliefs, I was not strong enough to put my foot down on things. So um, in college, funny enough, and and my little was always joke. I was so anti-marriage. I was like, I'm never getting mar- married. I might consider it in my thirties, but I'm going to be a, a dink dual income, no kids. If that's the case, I've never wanted kids like this and that and the other. And then I went to DC and, uh, got married <laughs> and, um, I, I got married to Chris was originally my boss at the daily caller. Um, and, and then, um, he's, he's now with the, the federalist, but, yep. um, that, <sighs> That was very much so um, kind of the best example of me just coasting along with what I thought I should be doing and what seemed right and with what was easy. Um, Chris's life was exciting. You know, he was going to the White House all the time. He was on the news all the time. 
Um, he was a, a big personality in D.C. So I got to go to all these cool, exclusive parties and meet all these important people and go to the Senate and go to the House and go to the Supreme Court and the White House and all this cool stuff. And it was just so easy to get caught in. in it's, it's very Hollywood-esque. It's like the Hollywood of politics. Yeah. And it was just so cool to be along for the ride and just get swept up in everything. And I thought that my excitement over being included in all those cool things was me loving it. And that was not the same. Yeah. I found out that I enjoyed on air work, but I didn't love politics. I didn't love that life in DC. I, I thought I did for a yeah. really long time. And, um, and, and I, I did the very stereotypical trajectory with Chris, which isn't bad. It just wasn't me. Yeah. And, um, his family's fantastic. Uh, his mom, his dad, his brothers, they're, they're all wonderful. Um, but Chris is very Catholic. Yeah. And I am not, I am agnostic at best. I've never been very religious ever. Yeah. I never wanted to get married. So how did I end up getting married to a very religious guy? Because I just kind of went along with things. Mm -hmm. And um, when he proposed, I, I was not ready for it. I remember very distinctly that my first emotion was panic and I feel like that's probably not what your first emotion should be when probably someone not. proposes yeah. to you. Um, I cried because there was a part of me that was excited, but I was mostly just overwhelmed and panicked. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't, I said yes, because I didn't want to ruin the moment. Yeah. And then I just never said, I never said I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big way that I didn't stand up for myself. And, and and you say stand up for yourself in it usually means like a negative connotation towards yeah. someone else. It was never negative toward Chris. I let myself down by not being firm enough in my convictions and strong enough in my character to have those hard discussions because yeah. I didn't like having hard conversations with people. So it was easier for me to just try and convince myself that it was really what I wanted. And I, I wasn't ready to get married and I compromised on kids, which is you can't compromise on a deal breaker. They're called deal breakers for a reason. Um, and you, you can maybe compromise on one kid to two kids. Yeah. You can't compromise on zero kids to two to three. Yeah. And I, I tried so hard, so hard to convince myself that it'd be okay. I tried to convince myself we'll be able to afford a nanny. It'll be okay, Katie. You, you, you'll get help. It's okay. You can keep your job. You can keep living your life. And that's never the mentality you should bring a child into the world yeah. with. And um, I, I just kept trying to convince myself of all these things and I kept trying to fit myself into this mold and because everything was cushy. Yeah. We, we were comfortable. We got to do what we wanted. We, we ended up buying a beautiful house. We had great friends. I got to go to all these parties, but the, the sheen and the excitement was very quickly starting to rub off and, and disappear and dull and kind of the excitement that made me think this is what I want was not there anymore. 
So then I just felt like I was existing in this space. And it was it was kind of the same as college. Yeah. My friends didn't understand gaming. They were even more harsh toward it because they're in politics. And a lot of folks in politics think that they're God's gift to earth and they're the smartest person in the room. Yeah. So they would see me playing video games and doing all of this and they would actively make fun of me, actively make fun of me and say, what are you doing? Come out here, hang out with us, turn off that game, stop it. What are you doing? Like, this is lame. Yeah. And so it, it was kind of that whole cycle all over again of me trying to conform myself to something that wasn't me while at the same time finding my, my safe haven in video games, which were actively being attacked. Did you feel like you were lying to yourself a lot of that time? Like that must have like it was our moment where you realized I've been lying to myself and like my belief system for all of these years. Did you ever have like a almost like a eureka moment about that? Um, I I think I always knew. I always knew I was just trying my damnedest to bury it. Yeah. And um I I guess I guess I would say the Eureka moment occurred uh, once I was married mm -hmm. and um, I realized I kind of had this moment where I sat down with myself and I wasn't happy and things weren't good. And I was happier when I wasn't home. And I kind of had this realization that I didn't want to become my mom. Yeah. I didn't want to stay in a marriage and have kids and then be bitter and miserable in my late fifties and then get a divorce and feel like I wasted all of those years of my life. I didn't want to do that. And, um, so we ended up having that discussion and, and that was probably the hardest talk I've ever had in my life. How do you have that conversation with when you're someone who's so struggles with conflict? Um, you, you just have to, um, I, there's, there's a point where you just do it uh, and you can't not do it. Like, that's the thing, right? Like if I didn't want to be in this marriage, if I wanted to start being true to myself, there's no way to do that without having the conversation. And it was quiet and hard and full of tears and exceedingly stressful, um, but there's a point where you simply owe someone that level of honesty. Yeah. And I had not been strong enough to give Chris that honesty initially. And I think what helped me do it was, um, focusing on him and realizing that I owed him that sincerity. Mm -hmm. So I, I told him everything that I told you. I told him that I had never been ready to get married and I wasn't strong enough. Um, I did not want children and I compromised on something that I could never truly compromise on, um, that, that I wasn't happy with politics anymore, that it didn't make me happy, that it was just stressful and ugly all the time. Yeah. And that I never would be Catholic and I didn't want that life. I didn't want church every Sunday. I didn't want any of these things and, and all the things that he wanted in his life that I tried to convince myself that I wanted in my life would just simply not true. Um, and uh, I'll be forever grateful to him that it was so painful, but amicable. 
we had that talk and then we went out and had probably the saddest date night I will ever have in my life. We went out to the restaurant where we had our first date and we sat there and cracked a bottle of wine and had a tear filled dinner that was full of sad laughs. But, um, that was kind of how the whole process started to roll through the divorce. And we never, um, we never had lawyers involved and we never fought over it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't say it wasn't really fucking hard, Yeah. but it was good. It was good. It was the first time that I was genuinely and sincerely very true to myself yeah. and, and finally stood up for what I knew was best for me and what I knew was best for him. I, and I know he will, I want him to go find a wonderful Catholic lady who wants to have a billion babies with him. And, and I want that for him more than anything. Yeah. I'm sure he'll find it, but I could never be that person for him and for myself. I could never do that or I would have been miserable. So I have a couple of questions for you. So one of these is honestly more personal than I think anything. Um, Did you feel like you were just your parents with another failed marriage? Because that's something that I worry about all the time. Um, I'm very embarrassed about it even now, which I know you shouldn't feel embarrassed. Like marriage is hard. And if you fail at it, that doesn't mean you're a failure, but that's very much how I feel. I, I, when I have to check divorced on things, it's an ugly feeling. It's Mm -hmm. a really ugly feeling. I feel like I failed. I feel like I'm less desirable because I'm a divorcee. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's like a, a black mark on me that I carry around forever. Uh, and I know that's not healthy and that's not realistic because getting a divorce does not make you a lesser yeah. person, but I feel like a lesser person because of it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I wanted to ask you, when you were telling him about all these things, that's gotta be like one of the most heart-wrenching feelings because you functionally, like, I don't, I don't mean to come across cross or rude, but you functionally lied to him. For kind of years while also lying to yourself like that's yeah i i mean you're basically telling someone that everything you assured them of was not true because you were not a strong enough person to be honest mm-hmm. and i apologize to him for that because I could not give him the honesty beforehand, but the least I could do was give him that honesty before things got too entangled with children or anything else. Um, And yeah, I know that I, I profoundly hurt him, but at the end of the day, I have to be true to myself because I would have been miserable and he would have been miserable. Um, And it, it was a really rough way to learn that lesson, but it was a very beautiful lesson at the same time because it kind of set me free in that way that I still struggle, like I said, with feeling like a failure and feeling like I have that black mark on me from getting a divorce. But I also learned exactly what I want in life, exactly what I want out of a partner, exactly what I expect from a partner, exactly what I want. If I ever choose to get married again, I am firm in the fact that I don't want children. There were all of these things that it taught me these lessons that I learned that I'm very grateful for because I know myself now far better than I ever knew myself before. So, 
I guess this is a kind of a cliche question um, for all the people out there who have a belief system. Like, what would you recommend them to do to make sure that they're following it? Like, do you have any like advice on that? Like, hey, you sh- you should really do this, and this is how I would suggest you do that. Um, honestly, surround yourself with people who have different opinions, because the best way to be true to yourself is to challenge what you believe. And Mm -hmm. that was something that I never did in DC. Mm -hmm. I never had to challenge anything that I believed in or that I thought I believed in. Yeah. And one of the blessings that I had from the biggest blessing I ever had from coming into esports and working with call of duty was that I expanded my worldview and expanded the diversity of my friendships more than I ever could in my entire life. Yeah. Um, some of my dearest friends now, realistically, I never would have even crossed paths with if I hadn't gone into esports, And that means more to me than anything in the world. And has that matured my opinions and my belief system? Yes. Has it necessarily changed it anymore? No, it's, it's opened it and matured it, but it, it's not changed it per se. And so I would say to, to people, the best thing you can do is, um, as they say, diversify your bonds, but diversify your friendships because, um, they will teach you about yourself and they will reaffirm or, um, evolve your opinions. And that's the best thing you can do. I don't ever isolate yourself, no matter what it is in life. Don't ever isolate yourself because it will only hurt you in the end. I agree with that. Uh, looking at your end of time with the Daily Calder, it was it was probably a, almost like a bittersweet, like something was ending, but that also started uh, kind of your descent into getting into esports. Like that was the end where you started looking at that. Where's the moment where you say, okay, fuck this, I'm done with pol- politics. We're going for the dream. Um, so it was honestly probably about a year into running the daily walkthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't happen right away. I left the daily caller because I knew that there was nothing else there for me yeah. and I wasn't happy there anymore. I felt mm-hmm. stagnant. Uh, I felt boxed in and I just wasn't happy with it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was also realistically severely straining my relationship with Chris to be working at the same place with him all the time. Mm-hmm. So when I started the daily walkthrough, um, it, it was a kind of a pipe dream at first, but yeah. people really liked it. Yeah. Really liked it. A lot of the PR heads, comms, team owners, um, the, the heads of, of companies and, and video game companies, like a lot of folks and a lot of very prominent folks were reading my newsletter every single day because I was really good at it. And it was about a year in, I think when I went to the Overwatch League Grand Finals for season one in Mm -hmm. New York, um, and I just had the best damn time. I, the memories I have there with folks like Brandon, Josh, Semler, Golden Boy, Puckett, um, are cherished memories. And I think it was my opportunity to, at a very real raw level, get to know folks on air folks in esports and build those relationships that confirmed to me, 
I want this more than anything. This is probably one of the first things in my life, maybe the maybe the first thing in my life that I'm going to fight for and make happen because I really fucking want it. Pardon my French. No, you're good. And it, it was really after the Overwatch League Grand Finals that um, I, I started very aggressively looking into how I could get more involved beyond being a, a journalist, beyond the daily walkthrough. And that's when I started leveraging my contacts. I had built a very, very substantial network at that point. Yeah. Um, that's where... I realized that there's nothing wrong if you're genuine with asking people for help yes. or asking people for things. People can suss out very quickly if you're a ladder climber and you're using them or if you're genuinely leveraging a friendship for help. Yep. They know the difference. And I, usually people, I struggled with that. Like, uh, like I actually oh, know so many people do. I, I know so many people at esports. It's insane. But I until recently have never asked for help. I don't like to. Like, there's very few people on that list that I feel comfortable enough doing that with. And some of these people have been friends with me for years, but mm -hmm. like, I just didn't like to do it. I don't like to to ask for help. That's yeah. You, it's imposter syndrome nope. is a is a great kind of word for it as well. But people, because you don't want to feel like you're using your yeah. friends, but you also have to understand that. Your friends want to help you. They yep. want to see you succeed and they want to help find you success. So you have to trust that your genuine eagerness is going to show through to them. So yep. I, uh, I ended up calling a, calling a friend in the industry and asking for advice. You called an Overwatch caster, I believe. Yes. Can and you say I, which one? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I had a talk with Semler, okay. uh, no, no longer with Overwatch, but, um, uh, wish him nothing but the best now uh, back in his home with CSGO. So I, I hope all the best for him. Um, but he, I asked him for advice and um, he offered to connect me with Activision and I was mind blown. And it was, uh, of course I said yes. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started the whole process of, of Call of Duty. Originally, I very much so wanted to try and get into Overwatch League. Um, but that didn't work out because I was kind of an untested talent yeah. and I was not, I was not native to esports, So they wanted to kind of try me on call of duty first. I played COD my whole life. Um, and it, it was a very rigorous interview process. Um, and, but, but I'm very grateful for it. Cause again, I've, I've met some of my dearest friends that yeah. have really shaped the last few years of my life through call of duty mm -hmm. so you go through this uh rigorous uh process of interviewing and you do you do work for uh call of duty league for the 2019 season mm -hmm. um the entire season um you go through it i'm sure there was lots of ups and downs but at the end they didn't they didn't renew your contract did they uh they did not and i i will say um i kind of felt and this is something that I talked to people behind the scenes and that they acknowledged with me as well, but they didn't give me any sort of a support system. Yeah. And um, I was still extremely new to esports. I was new to that whole world. And I wish my bosses had checked in on me one time. I wish one time ever they'd asked me if I was okay, how I was doing, if I needed anything if I had any concerns, I wish they offered me support in that way, but they essentially threw a little guppy into the ocean and, you know, let me, left me to my own devices. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I think if I kind of had more structure, I could have 
there would have been things that it would have been handled differently. Um, but suffice to say, as we, as we went through the year, um, I was informed, I was informed and I, I will never understand why this happened because it was just exceedingly unprofessional, but I was informed before playoffs that they were considering other options for next year. Not, and I, I don't know why you would tell that to someone. Yeah. There was no, there, we never had meetings of here's things you can improve. There was never anything like that. I never had those opportunities with them. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was informed before playoffs that they were looking at other options for next year. Um, and I can't even begin to tell you how painful that was mm-hmm. because I had put my heart and my soul into learning competitive COD to building relationships with the players to building relationships with the community and to, it it felt like a slap in the face because they just told me over the phone and they were just like, by the way, you might lose your job. Have fun by the way, playoffs and then champs. So, you know, keep up that energy. And Then I went to Miami for playoffs and it was the worst event of my life. I didn't want to go and I couldn't wait to leave because at that point as well, my relationship with Chris was falling apart. So I knew my job was at risk and my marriage was falling apart. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to be anywhere at any time. I didn't want to go to this event and see my coworkers and see the fans and see the players and know that I might be losing it all. And I didn't want to go home because I was losing that too. That's going to be hard when everything around you is literally crumbling. Oh, it was horrible. It was a horrible time. Um, I leaned very heavily on some of my dear friends like Pac-Man, like Study. Uh, I love them to pieces forever and ever Um, for the support that they showed me. They kind of created a home away from home for me. Um, And and then we had champs and it was just – was horrible because during all this time I was reaching out to my bosses and saying, can we talk? What can we do? How can I improve? How can I save this? I'm eager. I'm giving you everything. Mm -hmm. Please give me something back. So I know what I can do. And I never got that. I got smoke and mirrors and lip service and outright lies. Um, and it, it, I, I didn't understand it yeah. was so hard because I didn't understand. And I, I I sincerely felt for what I was given and for my first year, I did the best to my ability at that time. We had an amazing desk. Study Pac-Man, Nameless, and myself. Not only was it one of the most diverse desks in all of esports, but we were a unit. We yeah. genuinely loved and cared about each other. We spent a lot of time outside of work together, which reflected in our rapport on desk at work. And I have a full belief that if they had had faith in us as a unit, we would have become one of the best desks in esports, but they didn't have that faith in us. Um, And I mean, I don't know what else I could do. I was a finalist for host of the year in my first ever year hosting the commute. I was very close with the community. I was close with the players that I was able to bring in information that would not otherwise have been available to the audience. I, innovated on extra um, content for the audience when I would do the behind the scenes death segments. There was so much I tried to do that was shot down because they didn't have the time resources or funds. Um, So I tried to do things on my own. 
And I don't know, I guess none of it was good enough, I guess. And the off season was horrible because, excuse me, because, um, I was told repeatedly that I had a job. I was on all the talent calls. I was flown out to Las Vegas to do a keynote speech with the commissioner, Johanna. I was repeatedly involved in all of the talent discussions. And I guess it was all just lip service to keep me interested because I found out after the fact that I was never getting renewed. I never knew why. I was never given a reason why. I still to this day, I don't understand what happened Yeah, because up to a week, a week before Minnesota, I was told that I had a job. I was told that they wanted me, that I was involved, even if it wasn't going to be host, that, that I was going to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And it was all just lies, I guess. And so when I put out my tweet before Minnesota, I put out that tweet because I was just like, well, it's pretty clear. I didn't even have a no at that point. I was just like, it's pretty clear that I'm probably screwed. And it broke my heart because I put everything I had into that job and I wanted to continue to give. And um, they made the decisions that they made. And and frankly, I wish them nothing but the best. Um, I love the talent team. I love call of duty. I love the players. I love the community. So I want to see them thrive. I want to see them grow, but it, it was extremely painful to lose my job and lose my marriage all at the same time. And I, I kind of just felt like I was in a free fall. It was, it was very hard. I, um, I started streaming in the off season um, at the recommendation of a dear friend of mine, Bryce. And I kind of just sunk myself into streaming as a way to get away from things. And I wasn't eating. My home life wasn't good. I ended up losing 20 pounds from the stress. I didn't, I didn't have 20 pounds to lose. Yeah. And I, I just wasn't eating. I would stream eight to 10 hours a day and I was never hungry because I didn't have an appetite because of the stress and so I, I lost 20 pounds. I kind of looked like Skeletor for a while. <laughs> and it was all for naught because, uh, you know, losing the marriage was a good thing. Yeah. If, if you will. But everything with what happened with Activision was very deeply painful. And I still don't know what happened or why to this day. And I, again, I wish him nothing but the best. But I just wish they would have at least given me the courtesy of a no. Yeah. And they couldn't even give me that. And that was, and that was painful. It was like, it was like a relationship being ghosted essentially. <laughs> oh yeah. So. A very, like a fairly long relationship too. Like one, one full year. And then you just get randomly ghost. One of the things I was going to ask you, and you mentioned this earlier is that, and I, I almost commented on this cause this is, I'm sometimes I'm jaded about esports. Like there's, cause I worked with, uh, it's funny you mentioned Overwatch. I worked with an Overwatch team the first year. Um, mm-hmm. so I was doing it, but I was kind of like, once you see what esports can be, or there, there's parts of it, like there's some really good parts. There's also some really awful parts, but you mentioned Washington DC being very backstabby and kind of like that. And it seems like honestly, esports wasn't that much different for you. It was the same <laughs> smoke and mirrors as politics. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. You know, that was something I realized after the fact, you know, it was all sunshine and roses because it was exciting and new, which yep. was kind of a trend with me, right? It was exciting and new, so it was fun and cool and ooh. And then, you know, all the ugliness starts to rear its head. Um, 
I, I had, um, things happen behind the scenes, which were, um, unacceptable from a, um, from a me too standpoint. Have you talked about any of that or no? No. And I, uh, I don't really feel inclined to, um, but that was something that I meant when I said, I wish that my bosses had checked in on me just once, Mm -hmm. just one time. I wish that they had, had, um, checked in on me and it was quite the opposite because I will forever remember, um, that I I went out with folks all the time. I went out with, um, I went out with the talent. I went out with the players. We had a good time. I like to hang out with them. Yes. I enjoy going out and having a good time, but I also, liked to go out because it gave me the only time to get to know gamers is between like midnight and 5am. So I wanted to get to know them better again, so I can enrich the desk experience so that I could ask them for Intel so that I could invite them on the desk and they'd Mm -hmm. feel more comfortable doing so because they knew me on a personal level. And, um, in the off season, I had a call with a boss and, um, I, I addressed this with him because um, I felt that they had looked upon that negatively. They had looked upon it negatively. A a woman member yeah. of talent going out and partying, a party girl, if you will. And I I was told, um, well, that's very true that there is a a double standard for women and oftentimes a, a triple standard, but we're still going to keep it in consideration. Wow. So even though they admitted to me that there was a sexist double standard with how women going out is perceived versus how men going out is perceived, they still used it against me. They still viewed me in that lens. And um, there was a lot of things that happened like that. And and like I said, I, 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 maybe I'm not ready to talk about them. I'm just not inclined to talk about it. Um, I, I, I'm extremely proud of the strength and courage it takes for women to speak out on things like that. Um, I don't feel like I need to at this time. Yeah. I, I think to each their own decision. I 100% but agree. There was, there was a lot of ugly in the good. And, and I still look at it positively. Like I said, I, I loved my job. I loved my coworkers. I loved everything about it. Um, I just, I just wish that they had cared. So I, I don't I don't want to push you on uh, on obviously telling your story. But one thing I do want to ask you is um, being a, a woman in esports, I think, is very difficult. Um, a lot of the women who I've talked to, what advice would you give women considering that there is this double standard that I do not think is exclusive to Activision? Um, I think we've heard stories and seen tons of stories, especially this last year, uh, about people coming out in multiple different uh, titles. Uh, what advice do you give women where you you have these moments that are going on, but you still have this double standard? How do you work through that environment? So this might sound odd considering what I just said, but don't be silent. And I, I don't mean publicly. Don't internalize what's happening. Yeah. If something happens to you, and obviously there's a scale of severity, but yeah. if something's happening to you, at least confide in a friend share that burden. Even if you're not ready to talk to your boss or you feel like you can't, or maybe it is your boss, or you don't feel like going public because you feel like it could cost you opportunities or jobs or your image, at least confide 
in someone, at least confide in someone and don't let behavior like that slide. Mm -hmm. So share your burden with people who are close to you, but also call shit out when you see it. Yeah. If you see a guy being or, or a girl, cause it's both sides yeah. of the aisle. If you see someone being skeezy at a bar, or if you see a boss behaving inappropriately, say something or at least deflect the conversation yeah. or say, Hey man, that's not really cool. And then divert it to something else at do something, mm -hmm. even on the smallest level. If you see a friend who's uncomfortable, come up and be like, Hey man, Oh my gosh, something really came up. Can you come with me? At least bring them away from something that's happening. If you don't feel comfortable enough having a direct confrontation, because much like me, many people don't yeah. feel comfortable doing that. Um, but I would just say, be be someone to lean on, lean on people and don't be silent when you see things that are bad. Mm -hmm. Don't don't ever be silent because I know it's hard, but it's the it's the worst thing that you can do. Don't ever be silent. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm very, very proud of the women who have been willing to come out and share raw, ugly stories. Um, and I, I don't think we're done with that, but. It, being vocal about something is, is a very good first step and you should never feel ashamed. Yeah. You should never feel ashamed. And just like I shouldn't feel ashamed about getting a divorce, you shouldn't feel ashamed about something happening to you because it happened to you. You did not have a choice in yeah. what occurred to you. So you should never feel ashamed you should never feel ashamed of standing up for yourself or leaning on your friends. You should never be embarrassed enough to not confide because I, I did that. I, I kept all that pain inside myself. I never, I finally shared it with one person after CDL this year had already started. I had never confided in anyone about anything that happened up until then. And it, it was a weight on my soul. I felt like I was treading water and I was on the cusp of drowning, but I was just barely doing it. And he had no idea when I shared it with him and he was horrified Yeah, because he, he was like, how didn't you say anything? And I was like, because I felt like I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't. And so, yeah, I would just, I would just encourage any women or men out there um, at the bare minimum, know that you can confide in your friends, lean on them. Don't hold that burden in on your own. Cause it will crush you. I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Like that shouldn't happen to anyone. Um, and I'm really sorry. And it shouldn't, I wish, I wish the industry, I wish I could make everything just fucking magically change. Like I so wish I could for everyone out there. Cause it's, I think slow but steady awful. wins the race in that, I think. Yeah. And I think this is a good first step. Um, I, I, I hope that we're on a good trajectory at least. Mm -hmm. I, I hope so too. Um, my more pessimistic side doesn't think so, but I feel like, I hope it changes. God, I do. I'm um, a pessimist too, but you know what? This is something that I have to believe in and that I will believe yeah, in. So. Yeah. Um, looking at, uh, getting done with a C, uh, CDL, um, you mm -hmm. finish our C CWL, sorry, uh, CWL you're kind of out there and you're, you're streaming. Did you put on the facade that everything was okay? Like when you're doing these streams and stuff like that? 
Uh, as best I could, there were, there were certainly moments where my stream could tell that I was having an off day and I would, you know, I was open with them that everything that happened deeply hurt me, but I obviously anything severe behind the scenes, I didn't share. Mm -hmm. So there were, there were definitely days where they could tell that I was down and I love my community very, very dearly because they didn't even matter why they didn't. They were very respectful of my privacy, but they did their best to lift me up yeah. and create an environment for me to make me happy. And I love my community forever for that. Um, streaming was definitely a blessing in disguise because um, there's a lot of very wonderful people out there. Yeah. I think it's it's easy to see the ugliness because it's more interesting to see. Yeah. But there's a lot of a lot of love and a lot of, of beautiful people out there. So I'm very thankful that I I found many of them uh, in my community. Mm-hmm. So where's the point after like all of this stuff happens where you decide I'm going to start pulling myself back up. I'm going to start living my life and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to continue each day. Um, it was kind of, there wasn't really a moment so much as a slow and steady. Mm-hmm. I was streaming. I was working out regularly. Um, the, the kind of the only incidental upside of losing 20 pounds from stress was that I was in the best shape of my life. Um, so that was a kind of a nice little confidence boost of like, well, at least like I look good and I feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it was leaning on the support of my friends. It was joining bad moon talent. It was starting to expand myself beyond call of duty. Um, I, I still was involved with the CDL in the sense that I wrote long form articles and interviews for them. Um, so that was, I, I loved being involved in that way and creating content for them. Um, but it was just keeping myself busy, focusing on the stream, focusing on new opportunities, branching myself out, networking, basically just keeping myself busy and leaning on the fact that at the end of the day, I can't control the decisions of others. But if I know that I did everything within my power, I can at least take solace in knowing that there wasn't anything more I could have done. That, that makes sense. So your, uh, aggregate, I, News aggregation is that what would be technically considered your your website um, that you built? Why did you leave? Um, kind of a falling out with business partner. Okay. Um, and I don't really want to go into a ton of details with that, but essentially, um, I felt like I was doing far too much for nothing, and it just I loved writing that newsletter. I didn't yeah. want to leave it. But I felt like I was essentially giving and giving and giving to a black hole and receiving nothing in return. And there's a point where you just have to choose your time and your health and your stress, even if it costs you something you like. Mm-hmm. Was it uh, this is something that I've uh, like wondered a lot. Was it profitable? Was it something that was like a profitable? No, it, it could have been. Uh, I think if I'd had support in that way, yeah. but um, unfortunately it, it was not. And it could have been someday, but that was also, there was layers of messiness there that yeah. I just, I just wanted to avoid. Yeah. So I just, I just called it quits um, for my mental health. Yeah. I, I don't blame you. Like I, it's just something I kind of wonder because a lot of times uh, media outlets that especially in esports, they tend to pop up and then, Close yeah. down very quickly. And so like understanding the profitability, is there a way to make it profitable that is just news? Is that even something that from your your business standpoint, do you think it's even possible? Oh, it, it could have been possible um, with newsletter sponsors, ad revenue, et cetera, et cetera, paid, paid posts, whatever mm-hmm. you want to do. Paid posts obviously gets a little tricky. 
um, sponsored posts, if you will. So there was plenty of ways to do it. Yeah. I just couldn't do everything at once. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not finance major aside, I'm not business savvy in that way. Mm. So I wasn't getting that support and I just didn't have the bandwidth to do all of those things at the same time. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you move on, you've been doing, uh, you did lots of, uh, I would say freelance stuff cause you kind of moved more mm. into the freelance world. You did the home stands with Washington, uh, justice, I believe, um, during their second year. Um, what's it been like being a freelance? Um, I, I would say I, I enjoy it for, again, the new experiences and the new yeah. people and the new games I get to be a part of. Um, but at my core, I'm someone who wants to be planted somewhere and grow my roots there yeah. and better something. I'm very much someone who wants to put my heart and my soul into one thing and make it the best version of itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I enjoy freelance. I think it's great. Um, that the diversity of games and people I get to experience is phenomenal, but there is very much a yearning for me to be able to dig my roots into something. Mm -hmm. And, and thankfully in a way I have that with optic. Um, yeah. I absolutely love optic. Everyone behind the scenes are incredible. Um, so I'm, I hope to, it, it's been a little hard with content due to COVID. Yeah. Um, but I hope to continue that relationship with them, um, for as long as possible and, and build something beautiful with them while also looking kind of for, for a game or a place to kind of stick my roots into and grow. Mm -hmm. So looking at optic, obviously optic has changed from the optic that it was, um, it is no longer the same thing. What's it like working for optic? Uh, it's great, honestly. Like I said, um, Max, Evan, Hunter, all the folks behind the scenes, um, Eric Muddog, our general manager, a dear friend of mine, they have been nothing but open, creative, and wonderful with me. Mm -hmm. I, I sincerely have loved my time with Optic for how fantastic they've been. Um, and that's why I want to continue the relationship because when you love the people behind the scenes, it makes you want to just put in, you know, 200%. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been great so far. Yeah. The toxicity from the community is tough to deal with at times. Um, cause people love to hate. Yeah. It's just, it's very easy to hate. Yes. Um, but I've also found that if I return that hate with kindness, with engagement and, and with understanding, most people tend to come around to things or at least be neutral. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I've tried to continually put forward with that. Uh, we're actually um, doing a, a charity partnership with Susan G. Komen and Optic on Friday. I'm putting on a, a, a big Warzone stream. We're raising money, raising awareness for breast cancer because it's closing out Pink Week. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something I loved about Optic, too, is they've been all in on any charity stuff I can think of. They're very gung ho about kind of like giving back in that way, which I've appreciated. Mm -hmm. Looking at um, your your old political views uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that that's haunted you? I mean, obviously, some of the stuff that came out, and I believe it was June or July, kind of came back where you you wrote your apology. Um, do you feel like people don't give you enough room that you've maybe changed? Um, no, I don't think they do. But I also understand that um, I, I'm not going to expect people to put in the time and effort to yeah. acquire context. Um, because I know how Twitter is. I think Twitter is a cesspool, frankly. I've contributed to that cesspool a time or two in my life. But um, it's far too easy to see one thing and make a knee-jerk judgment than it is to take the time to look at their life, look at who they surround themselves with, look at their mentality, look at what they put forward every day. Because yeah. that takes time and effort, and it's kind of difficult, and it's a hell of a lot easier to just 
be an asshole on Twitter. I would know. So, I mean, I wish people would take the time, but you know, I'm not going to expect anyone to, which yeah. is why I try and live. I try and live every day of my life as I have lived it for the last few years yeah. and have faith that people will see who I am um, in, in due time. If, even if they haven't, you know, even if they haven't seen it in, in these years, uh, I think that they'll see it going forward because I know who I am and I know what's in my heart. Um, and that's just something, obviously it takes time to build back trust. And I'm fully confident that I'll build it back because I know who I am. Awesome. So I have one last question for you, actually. Um, you've been through a wild ride. It's two hours, quick two hours. I uh, love it though. Honestly, this has been, it has been my pleasure to join you for this. So, oh. so thank you again. This has been really wonderful. I loved having you on. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Cause if you didn't, you've, you've been stuck here. So there's, there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it now. Um, I have one question for you. Um, yes. if you've watched my interviews, I, this is actually the only question I think I repeatedly ask, um, having had the experience to, uh, be on the show, uh, if you could see anyone on here and the only criteria is that, okay, there's two criteria. They need to speak English cause it's the only language I speak. Um, <laughs> And uh, they need to be involved in either entertainment, esports. They don't necessarily need to be in front of camera. They can be behind the camera. Uh, just someone involved in, I would say, the entertainment industry. Uh, who would you like to see on the show? I would love to see Shady on the show. So Garrett Smith, Shady, you know him um, from Astro. He's kind of uh, one of the, the front-facing members of Astro. Mm -hmm. Shady has a very interesting life story. Um, the happenstance opportunity that allowed him to enter the scene, his life trajectory beforehand, his upbringing, his passions now. Um, Shady, Shady is such an interesting person, a dear friend of mine, but, but someone with a lot, a lot to say, a beautiful story to tell. Uh, I can't say enough good things about, about Shady. So um, his, his Twitter, his Twitch, uh, his Twitch is I'm so shady. I'm not sure if that's his Twitter. I'm literally gonna check for you right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his, his Twitter is shady G. Mm -hmm. He, he is such an interesting person. So, um, I'd, I'd highly recommend that you consider bringing on shady. Awesome. I will look into it. Well, that's actually all the questions that I have for you, Katie. I loved having you on here. Uh, if you have any shout outs or anything, you're more than welcome to give them now. Let's all close out the show. Shout out, oh boy, shout out John Robinson. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of from 100 Thieves last year. It's the only thing. I love the Oak Boys. I love 100D. So anyone says that, I'm like, shout out John Robinson, we know. But um, no, honestly, uh, shout out to you Thank for you. thinking of me, for inviting me, for having me on. It has been my privilege to be here with you for two hours. I very much so enjoyed my time. And um, the Minds of Media, this is a wonderful show. So really, honestly, the shout out I'd like to give is to you. Uh, I hope you keep with this. I hope that you keep it up because you've been doing a wonderful, wonderful job. And if there's anything I can do to help you, please know that I am uh, hopefully a friend now and a yeah. resource to you that you can lean on if you ever need anything. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, for everyone out there, this has been the Minds of Media. I hope you've enjoyed this. And until next time, I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Bye.